This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Roadmap Writers is a screenwriting education and training platform for writers looking for a guided path to success. Programs are hosted by working industry executives and are designed to empower writers with actionable tools and insights to elevate their craft and cultivate industry relationships. Since 2016, Roadmap has helped more than 84 writers sign to representation and countless others get staffed, optioned, or sell their script. To learn more, visit RoadmapWriters.com and use the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, to save $15. Roadmap Writers, the road to your screenwriting success starts here. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we are talking about getting noticed with uh, stunt specs, as well as writing comedy for TV animation and features with a very special guest. We're joined by Jordan Vandina, writer for Supermansion, What Would Diplo Do, The New Animaniacs, and most recently the feature film The Binge, starring Vince Vaughn. Welcome. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. That's Thank a great you. intro. Yes. <laughs> uh, thanks for being here. And let's get started. Let's do it. So first up, uh, where are you from originally and how did you end up in LA and in the industry? Oh, I'm from Ronkonkoma, Long Island. Have you guys been? No idea what that is. Oh, the dirty conk, they call it. You guys would love it. You have to come. Uh, It's the last stop on the Long Island Railroad. So if you fall asleep on the railroad, you'll end up in Ronkonkoma. Hell of a place. Good people. I used pretty much everyone from my high school's names in the binge. I just took their names and used them. So hopefully they'll see that movie and be like, what is going on here? Why is my name in this? But uh, yeah, I might get sued. And then uh, after that, I went to Emerson College in Boston. And your last semester, they send you here. I lived at the Oakwoods. Corey Haim was my neighbor. And then I was here for the rest of it. I've been here for 10 years now. Well, yeah. uh, happy 10-year anniversary. Oh, thank you. It's great. Can you tell us some of your inspirations, whether TV or movies, in terms of comedy? It's a good question. You'd think I would have thought about this more. <laughs> I guess growing up, I was watching a lot of SNL, like a lot of sketch stuff. And then those Sandler CDs were a big inspiration. Those were great. And I remember I had a babysitter who I was like six listening to the Sandler CDs and they were so dirty. And she was just like, (laughs) you're not allowed to listen to this. And I was like, my mother bought this for me. And it was a big debate between me and my babysitter. So jokes on her. Now I'm insanely rich. (laughs) And then, yeah, I guess as I got older, like really David Wayne was huge, like Wet Hot American Summer and Stella and all that. Yeah. Those are still the guys I just look up to and Never met any of them, but hopefully one day I will. So what was some of your first jobs in the industry here in LA, like before you became a writer? I was an editor at a visual effects house. And I did that for like seven years, this place called Hydraulics, where they did a lot of the big movies like Avengers and a lot of the Marvel movies. And they made their own movie called Skyline. And I was like an onset editor for that, which was a nightmare. And I was like, I never want to do this again, because it's just so much pressure. You were, I was doing playback and then editing the scenes as they shot them. And I was like, I, this is so terrible. I can't believe people would have like the mental fortitude to do this because <laughs> I was just a terrible editor and I knew I wanted to be a writer. So I was like, I don't, I don't care about this, but it's good to be getting paid. I was getting paid as I was editing and I was writing there. So if you can find a job that'll pay you that you have some downtime, I think that's the best thing you can do. Well, to that point, do you remember the first actual writing job you were paid to do? Was it uh, for TV, a feature or something else? First thing I was paid to do, I think, was what would Diplo do? And then before that, I was just found online because I had so many years of just not getting paid to do anything that I just started releasing scripts online. So I started this website called weekendscripts.com where I would take a news story like the fire festival and it would come out Friday. I would spend the weekend and I would write 80, 90 pages of full screenplay and release it Monday. And then people would be like, 
how could there be a script about this already? And then it would go viral because it wasn't that great, but it was just the timeliness of it. People were like, wow. And then the first one that really hit was Fast 9, The Fast and the Fuhrer, <laughs> where the Fast team goes back to race Hitler. And then Paul Shear found that. And then he was like, we should do a live read of this. I was like, yeah, that's amazing. He didn't know me at all. He just like out of the kindness of his heart. Nick Kroll played Hitler. Manzukas played Vin Diesel. It was awesome. We did it at the Regent Theater. Great timing. How do you kind of push out that much material in a weekend? How do you get past that roadblock and the kind of critic in your head? Uh, It's just like, I know that no matter what, I'm going to put it out. So to me, it's like, I don't care where it ends up. And if no one sees it, then no one sees it. It's only a weekend in my life. So I just keep pushing until it's done. And it's really joke heavy. And a lot of times you're just like, well, this would never work in a real movie. But I know that it's not going to get made because I can't. I don't have the rights to it. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's just like pretty freeing to just go and go and go and then release it Monday with barely even reading it. Like people will come up to me and be like, Hey, this part is crazy of that one script. I'm just like, I have no memory. of it. I don't go back and read it ever (laughs) to that idea. What is your writing process? Like, do you write linearly? Do you outline? Do you rewrite at all? With those, with the weekend scripts, I pretty much just have like, I know where it's going to end up. So like, uh, they're going to end up racing Hitler and in the middle, they're going to go to Applebee's and like, I'll have like four things written as an outline and then I'll just fill it in the rest with poop jokes or whatever it is. Is there any like rewrites? You said you don't even really read it. So yeah, I'll read it over probably once Sunday and then just change anything I can. Like I'd never even seen the fast and furious movies before I wrote that. And then I watched all seven in a row. So I feel like I was fully ready to talk about Corona and family and all the landmarks of fast and furious. (laughs) So you mentioned that Paul found your script. Were you doing anything particular to push that out beforehand, uh, creating it with people, sharing it online? Uh, yeah, it was all Twitter. I I started this thing called assistant to Doug Allen, which was like when I was at the VFX house with, I was releasing fake entourage script pages and they were all joke pages before the movie came out. And Seth Rogen was my first follower because I tweeted it at him and he was like, Oh, this is funny. I don't like entourage or whatever his (laughs) feelings were. And then because of that, a lot of people started following me and then I got a manager out of it and it was all gravy from there but really not because I didn't get paid for another five years after that. (laughs) So to that point, how did you kind of leverage that publicity and that momentum to find more jobs or opportunities or, you know, get your manager, things like that? Yeah, it's, it's pretty hard because like at every point I was like, okay, now I'll get a writing job. Like Seth Rogen found me. Now I'll get a writing job. And then like the always sunny guys found me and they were like, Oh, we love your Twitter. I was like, Oh, I could write on that show. And then that didn't happen. And then at every step you're like, okay, now it's going to happen. And then it just never does. So you just keep going. Then I started weekend scripts and then I wrote like six of them. And then Paul Shear did the live read. And that's when I got that manager who was like, Oh, we'll try and get you a job on this Diplo show. So it took years and years. And I just, kept releasing free stuff until I got a writing job. Do you think there's anything uh, replicable about that idea of a stunt spec or going viral? I think so. I mean, that Seinfeld guy did it with the 9-11 Seinfeld script. Who we actually had on the podcast. Oh, Let's talk yeah, about it. How was he? Better than me or worse than me? I need to know right now. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's a great idea because it's just what I keep hearing from showrunners whenever I get a writing job is like, a lot of these pilots, they're just in the stack. And then when we see something that says Fast 9, the Fast and the Fuhrer, we just want to pick it up because it's weird and different. It's like an original spec, but it also it has something you recognize, which is characters from that movie. So it's like a hybrid of both. And how do you sort of balance the the gimmick of it with something that's actually entertaining? I guess the key is to just find the characters of it. So like, what is Vin Diesel's thing? And is it all about family and all about Corona? And then once each character has a thing... Then you can go through the whole script and you could show, oh, I can write characters, even though it's this silly sort of format. 
And were those stunt specs what you ended up using as writing samples for staffing? Or did you sort of write an original pilot after that? Uh, yeah. Actually, every job I've gotten was because of Fast 9. All three shows. Even with Animaniacs. So I knew the writer's assistant. He was like, oh, we need uh, Brad DePrima. I'll, I'll shout him out. He's writing a bunch for that show, too. And he was like, we're looking for a new writer, and I sent him that. He gave it to the showrunner, who liked it, and then sent it to Amblin, who liked it. And so we've just been spreading Fast 9. Spreading it everywhere. Yeah, spreading it all over. Why not? <laughs> so when you were writing those uh, those scripts, you mentioned that they were uh, very timely based on events happening. How were you timing them properly? Were you thinking about that actively? How did that work? Yeah, well, that's what's crazy, is that the news cycle now is just moving so fast that I can't do it anymore. Like, especially Trump stuff. I tried to do some Trump scripts and I was like, this is a complete waste of time. I wrote this one called Bigly, which was the story of Big, but it was with Scaramucci. And by the time I released it, he was already fired. So I had to go back in and change the ending. And I was like, oh, this is what am I doing here? And now pretty much no one even remembers Scaramucci. So like those scripts, you can't go back and read it because you don't remember what was happening. A lot of people remember him as a twist on Big Brother yeah. Celebrity too. And I think this he's year. on, who's on Dancing with the Stars? Oh, oh that's my Spencer. God. Yeah. <laughs> oh my, they're all, they're all getting out there on reality Oof. TV. So how did you get that first job on What Would Diplo Do? Walk us through that kind of process. Uh, so once I, I had a manager, Ari Lubet at Three Arts, I still have him. I guess he was just sending my scripts out everywhere. And then one of his clients had followed me on Twitter, this guy, Brandon Dermer, who was pitching the show with James Vanderbeek. They read the script. They liked it. We had lunch and that was it. And the writer's room was incredibly small. It was just me, James, Brandon, and this guy, Hal, who was also on Dawson's Creek. James pretty much wrote all the episodes. I was there to just like punch it up or add ideas. And he was the showrunner, the star all around great guy. And what was the writing process? So did he come in with basically the whole season mapped out? He had basic ideas for each episode. And then we sit on the whiteboard and we talk about sort of like the philosophical, like ideas of Diplo and getting a confetti cannon. And it was like, <laughs> it was so bizarre. I was just like, I'm sitting with James Vanderbeek talking about confetti cannons in a <laughs> philosophical way. It's very strange, but it was awesome. I mean, he would text me at night and be like, I want you to know, man, you're really funny today. I'm like, Jesus Christ, James Vanderbeek, you're the nicest person in my life. You're so awesome. But yeah, so that was great. He wrote most of it. So I really wasn't doing a lot of scripting, which was different than Supermansion, where we would write full episodes on our own. And how much do you kind of base off of the real life Diplo when you're writing the series? Not much. I mean, he would, he came in once and he met with us and he was like, do whatever you want. I don't care. He was just super cool. (laughs) And so like, we basically figured out the character in the room. And then it was sort of this like idiot savant DJ. And then we'd write based on that, which I don't think he, he really is like, but maybe he is. I only <laughs> talked to him once. And uh, given that the showrunner was also the star of the show, uh, how much balancing was there between improv and what was on the page? I think we had so little time to shoot those for Viceland. I still think it's Viceland's only scripted show ever. Yeah. I don't even know if Viceland's around. Uh, I mean, Vice proper is doing scripted content, but I'm not sure about Viceland specifically. Trying to explain what Viceland was to everybody in my life was just a nightmare. (laughs) And like their slogan was literally, I think, we are a TV network. And I was like, just look at the slogan. You'll figure it out. (laughs) But yeah, there was a little bit of improv, especially like Bobby Lee was in there and he was great. And this guy, H. Michael Croner from the Groundlings was there and he was awesome but yeah mostly it was just script because it was we had so little time to shoot six episodes and were you involved in the production side or being on set or was it mainly just kind of the room work uh yeah i was on set the whole time it was james 
we started writing it before we were getting paid. So he really fought for like me to get a, a co-EP credit, which is awesome. crazy for your first job. It just mm-hmm. doesn't happen. And it hasn't translated since because everyone was like, well, you're, you shouldn't be a co-EP. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I shouldn't be. And uh, did you do a uh, super mansion after that? Yeah, Supermansion was a couple months after that, and that was for Crackle, which, I, again, another network that may have folded at this point. And that was the stupid buddy guys who do Robot Chicken, and that was awesome because you like you're in the building with all the puppets, and you see all the sets, and Seth Green's there, and it's really it's just an awesome environment. And how was the transition like? Did uh, your rap uh, put you up for the job, or how did that work? Yeah, also yeah, sent Fast Nine, and then the showrunners Eb Wells uh, read it and liked it, and that was it. And then how did you approach kind of writing for animation and particularly stop motion animation? Was it much different from writing for live action comedy? It was different than writing Diplo, but it was more similar to the weekend scripts because it's just anything could happen. You could pretty much figure out whatever you wanted to do and get it done, except with the puppets, they're like super expensive. So they were like, you only get two outfit changes per season. So if like you wanted them to go to Hawaii, you couldn't do it. Like you had to pick and choose where you wanted them to switch outfits. Now in a very special episode of it. Yeah. <laughs> Aloha. Were you present for the production, for the voice records, all that stuff? No, I went down there a few times just to watch them record. Brian Cranston was like, I think he's the EP, would come in and once in a while and say hi, and I'd watch him record. And that was awesome. But yeah, for the most part, I just wrote and handed it in. That was a small room too. I think that was f- four of us. Mm-hmm. So I haven't been a part of like, you hear like family guys, like 22 guys, mm-hmm. but that sounds awesome. And how long was that room in the season? I think we did 10 episodes and that was eight weeks, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Or was eight episodes, 10 weeks? It's definitely eight and 10 something. And can you walk us through sort of the, those first few days in the rise room, whether on, uh, on Diplo and Supermansion, even now on Animaniacs, what is your process as a staff writer? How do you engage creatively with the people around you in a good uh, way? It is a weird, because when you walk in, I went into Animaniacs and I was hired for season two after they had already been together for season one. And it's just very, everyone's like trepidatious at first and everyone was so awesome, but like they also, a lot of them went to Harvard. So they're so smart. I'm just like, I, I'm from Ronkonkoma. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't know what you guys are talking about. Everything you're saying is very, very smart. But once you get to know everyone, as long as you're like nice to everyone, then I've seemed to get along with most people. I don't know what they're saying behind my back, but to my face, everyone's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like working on your first script? I guess if you didn't do the scripts on Diplo, then on Supermatch or Animaniacs, you know, how do you approach that process in a room with the direction of, you know, showrunners and stuff? So as Supermansion, we outlined it pretty extensively. We had like in the room, you'd break the entire story of the episode. So we'd write like a five page in paragraph form exactly what's going to happen because it was like serialized so you had to be in in tune with the last episode and the episode before it so you really had to know what was going to happen and then once i went to write it i'm used to writing pretty fast so i was write it in a couple days but then i would go over it a lot more whereas i knew this was going to get made and not just a thing i'd put on the internet so i i think i'd certainly worked harder on these than my other stuff because someone else was going to read it for sure. Well, to the idea of, of working fast, were there anything that you learned doing the, the weekend scripts that you sort of put in action in the rise room? I think just getting to the end is the most important stuff is like, once I start, I, I don't want to just keep going back and back. So I do the full draft and then I'll go back and revise a bunch because I feel like most people get caught up with like, well, I stopped at page 20. I'm going to perfect those before I finish it. That's what kills everyone. Good as the enemy have done. 
See, that's a smart line. If I heard that in the Animaniacs writers' room, I was like, "This guy's smart." <laughs> and uh, are there a lot of rewrites in that process? Do you bring it back into the room and everyone kind of punches it up as a room? How does that work? Yeah, that's and I think that's the best process because then you're taking your script and you're with five hilarious people, and it's always going to get better. It's never going to get worse. So we take the scripts and then. There would be general notes from the showrunner, and then we'd just go in and just make lines funnier, make sections funnier, and it was it always ended up better every time. So I'm not sure how much of uh, Animaniacs you can talk about, but can you discuss the process of getting on Animaniacs in the first place? Sure, yeah. So I had this pasta pass. Do you know about this from the Olive Garden? I, I have heard of this, Oh, yeah. this is a delight. So it's once a year they release a pasta pass i believe it's a hundred dollars for three months of unlimited pasta at olive garden you can go 25 times a day and you have to be in a waiting room it's like getting like coachella tickets and so i was getting a lot of texts that were like the pasta pass is going on sale it's going on sale this is a long way to tell this story but it's worth it and so i wait in line all morning i get my pasta pass which is hundred dollars for unlimited meals for three months and then i want to go the first day i get it so i call my friend brad who's the writer's assistant on animaniacs I wasn't working at the time. I treated him to a beautiful dish of free pasta. And he said, hey, we need a writer if you want to send me anything. And I sent him Fast 9. And then the next two days, I had the job, I think. It was like within that week, I met with Wellesley Wilde, who's the showrunner. He wrote the TED movies, so he's insanely funny. And then, yeah, I was I was working there the next week. That's the ultimate product placement. Thank and, you, Olive Garden. Yeah, thank you, Olive. And the funny thing is I only went that time. So I spent $100 <laughs> on one bowl of pasta. I never went back. It was worth it, yeah. obviously. Yeah. What kind of pasta did you get him? I, I think we got some. It had to be rigatoni. <laughs> you know, have you heard of chicken riggies? Yes. Oh, right. I've been in Syracuse for two months, and the only thing they have at every restaurant is chicken riggies. It's the best thing ever. Yeah. It's a little spice, a little chicken. We got to get back to Syracuse. Should we all go now? <laughs> Let's do a pasta team. That's the new podcast that we're doing now. Yeah. Oh, you know, I wanted to do a podcast about the a pasta pass about how it just ruined my life and I <laughs> caused a divorce and I had to sell my house because I was eating so much Olive Garden. But who's got the time? <laughs> so again, I don't know how much you can say here on Animaniacs, but coming into a show with such a legacy, you know, as many people's childhoods, how do you approach kind of honoring that past version while also bringing something new to it and, and modernizing it? Yeah, that is, I mean, the show was always sort of meta, so I feel like a lot of it where we're referencing the fact that, like, it's a reboot, and it's, I watched a bunch of the old stuff just to see, like, oh, what can we maintain, and what can we update, and it's like, I think it's going to be a lot for the people that watched the show back in the day, we'll love it now, but it'll also be great for kids, so, yeah, it's just about keeping a modern feel, but also referencing all the old stuff that people love. And knowing that the show is going to be released on Hulu on an OTT platform, uh, have you guys approached it any differently in terms of the writing, uh, making it more uh, bingeable, serialized, anything like that? No, I don't think so. There's different segments in each episode. And I don't know how they used to do it in the old days, but I think it's probably pretty much the same. So you recently sold and made a feature film, The Binge. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so I had this script. I just, I, everything I've ever done, I've just written first. Cause I, I hate the pitching. I'm bad at pitching. I don't like going in a room for like 20 minutes, just talking to someone. It makes me very uncomfortable, but here we are talking <laughs> for an hour. Uh, but yeah, I, I just feel weird. I'd rather just write it and then have someone read it and be like, I like this or I don't. So I just wrote this spec feature, which was the binge. It's like the purge, except there's no drinking or drug laws. And then my manager and agent sent it around. And this guy, Jeremy Garlick found it, who he directed The Wedding Ringer, and he wrote The Breakup with Vince Vaughn, and he's he's awesome. But he bought a high school in Syracuse, and he's only shooting high school movies there. And so, yeah, this is their 
big movie, which he directed. And yeah, we got Vince Vaughn and this Skylar Gisando and Dexter Darden, Eduardo Franco, all the book smart cast, if you've seen that. And yeah, it was awesome. I got to be on set the whole time, lived in Syracuse, had a blast, chicken riggies. <laughs> and what was it like being a writer on set? Uh, do you have any specific responsibilities, especially on a feature film? There was a lot of just like on the day, like, oh, let's change this or let's change this. Especially like I would just sit with Vince and I call him Vince now. We're close friends. Uh, but like when he'd get to town, I'd just like hang out with him. And he's so funny and like he improvs so well. I would just listen to what he was saying and then I would just write down what he was saying and then show it to him. And he'd be like, this is great. This is hilarious. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you said it. So funny. So like I was basically just like changing stuff on the fly based on the actors and their opinions. And it, it was more work than I was expecting, but it was always fun. Like it never got tense or like, it was just making jokes. It was great. And what do you think the main differences were working on a feature as a writer, as opposed to in a TV room? I guess you just know the end game. Like I was like, Oh, we have three weeks. We got to make this as good as possible. And there's no going back. We're not going to reshoot any of this probably. So this, this is it. We got to make the script great. And Pulu's putting up a lot of money, so we have to impress somebody or not. We'll see how it ends up. But uh, yeah, with TV, you just feel like you have more time. Like Animaniacs, I've been there for a year and it's like, oh, we can go back at the animatic phase and we could change jokes with this. It was like, we got one shot. And how do you approach getting feedback on your own material? Uh, you mentioned obviously reps. Uh, do you have any specific uh, advice in that area? I send it to friends that I, that I trust their opinion and, and hear feedback, but I always feel bad sending people stuff. I'm just like, I, and no one sends me stuff. I'm always like, you can send me whatever you want. No one ever sends me anything, but yeah, I, I just send it to friends and reps once in a while will tune in or like now I'll send it to Jeremy who directed the movie and hopefully he'll give me feedback and you just want people you trust to tell you that it sucks. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> Have you dealt much with the kind of instability of being a writer in the industry, you know, not knowing when you're going to be working next or for how long and how do you approach that? Yeah, it's, I mean, between Diplo and Superman was probably three months. And then between Superman and Animaniacs was probably eight months. So it's like, there's no guarantee. And that whole time I was like, I just need to keep writing. So during that time, I probably wrote three features and two pilots and i was just never stopping because i was like oh this this is terrible at, at eight months you're like I, I don't know what i'm gonna do i, I don't know. like you could start driving uber to do whatever start emailing everybody and by like the second time you're hitting everyone up you could tell they're like all right well i don't have a job for you so i don't know what you want me to do but yeah it's it's so inconsistent there's just no way to guarantee the next job well on that do you have any advice uh towards uh, maintaining your sanity and uh, staying creatively fulfilled in those uh gap years Well, I was doing a lot of bits on Instagram, which I was, uh, I did a bit where I would review albums, but I would only play Mambo number five. And then I would taste the new Diet Coke, but then spit it out, but then say it was great. And I was doing that a lot and no one was watching it. I was getting 50, 60 views, but you could tell when I'm unemployed by the amount of bits I'm doing online. And so that's what was creatively fulfilling me, even though no one was watching. And then, yeah, just writing a lot and hoping, like, there's always the hope, like, I'll write this and then I'll sell it. And that I, there was never an option for me not to be continuing writing. So I was like, well, at some point, hopefully something will hit or I go back to Ronkonkoma. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Were you trying to be strategic with the content you were putting out there? Yeah, I guess I was being, yeah. You don't want to send too much once you've like bombarded people with stuff. So like I would write two or three feature scripts and then I would go on like general meetings and you'd, get the lay of the land and just say, oh, do you like this? And most of the time they'd be like, no, but what else do you got? And you're like, I just pitched you everything. You want more stuff? So almost never does a general meeting pan out. But 
one of them did, and I actually sold another movie to Netflix, which I don't, I don't think I can talk about yet, but really who cares? But so yeah, after the binge, then I have that one and hopefully it'll keep going, but it could all stop once someone sees the binge and they don't like it. And do you have any tips for like comedy writers who want to put themselves out there online, whether Twitter or Instagram, things like that? Like, how do you approach kind of creating that online presence and standing out? You want to just say like, if you're funny, you'll stand out, but there's just so many funny people on Twitter, but it's just insane access to people. Like 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to get to Seth Rogen or the sunny guys. Or now it's just like, you can tweet at them and sometimes they'll see it. Sometimes they won't. And for a writer, it was just, I was releasing script pages. So I was saying to people, I can do this. Here's a script. And like, even if it was a one page thing, like they would announce like the Tetris movie or whatever. And I'd write a fake one page for Tetris and people would be like, Oh, this is funny and hopefully share it. And mm-hmm. if not, then you do another one. You just keep going until someone cares. And do you have any advice for people in the writer's room to be essentially useful in the room? I think the key is to just not always listen and not talk over people. Like I could tell when people get annoyed, if someone's like in the middle of a thought and someone just jumps in and is like, well, what about this? And you're like, well, just let that guy finish his thought. And like, you know, a lot of people just want to chime in because they get excited, but they don't realize like it could come off as rude. But, you know, other than that, as long as you're being polite to everyone around you and just respectful of their ideas and you're never like, that idea sucks. Why would you say that? Which, you know, I say all the time to people because now I have a movie career. What do I care? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just being a generally good human being, I think, will take you far enough. Are there any other faux pas that you witnessed in the room? Any faux pas? I don't. Some people leave a lot of cups in the room. They're drinking a lot and leave <laughs> cups. Other than that, I, not really. I think every all three rooms I've been in have been awesome. Everyone likes each other. We all hang out. There's no, like, animosity that I could tell. So all three of them, I, I think I've gotten lucky. What about you? Have you guys found any, like, weirdness in the rooms? I feel like my rooms have been pretty positive as well, and everyone, everyone's gotten along. It is really more just those little things like, oh, maybe don't interrupt someone in the middle yeah. of a sentence or, you know, that kind of stuff, I think, that that stands out. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's usually the hours. I feel like depending on the room, if the EP loves their family or not, you can sort of tell. Yep. And I feel like that's probably the most draining is after a certain point. I mean, everybody has their own uh, threshold, but after a certain point, usually creatively, you're uh, more drained. So yeah. I feel like balancing that is, is tough in the room. The other one I'd say is like people who just kind of hang on to the same pitch or idea and they repitch it again. And like, well, I really think we should go back oh, to this. Yeah. Like, what about, yeah, but like, no, we already said that that's not going to work. Kind yeah. Of thing. Yeah. In our last room, we had like a three strikes rule where you get to pitch it up to three times. And then after that, you just have to shut up. That's a good rule. So then you could say you hit your three strikes. Yeah, exactly. It's a general cut and dry. Yeah. But yeah, I'd feel like at least with me, I was so excited by the time I got there that every day I'm just like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to make jokes. Like I would never be an asshole to somebody because this is like so great every day. And I feel like most people, no one just stumbles into a writer's room. So you're working so hard that by the time you get there, I think most people are just thankful to be there. And what's the breakdown between pitching those jokes as opposed to story ideas or structure things? It's, it's, different with like animaniacs are such short segments so we'll just pitch ideas to the showrunner and then he'll pick one and then usually we'll write it on our own or we'll bring it in the room and figure it out more but i think it's just so fun when you have a script in the room and everyone's just saying jokes and just that's my favorite part of it going back to the kind of development and pitching side have you been out like pitching tv series at all or has it mainly been features uh yeah i've pitched a few shows i'm actually pitching one to sony next week but uh yeah it's the worst part for me i hate it i hate like figuring out what's in season three it's like i don't know i don't even know it's an episode two i don't (laughs) want to lie about this and then 
One time I did a pitch. It was on Halloween, and I was dressed as Guy Fieri. I was just like, they're going to love this. They're going to go crazy. And I went there. Nobody laughed. And I was like, I was going to dress like this either way. Got nothing. Nobody <laughs> smiled. The pitch went terribly. And oh, then no. at the end, they were just like, to the, the intern that was sitting in, like, any questions for him? And she just quietly shook her head no. And I was like, this is a disaster. I'm dressed like Guy Fieri. <laughs> Nobody laughed once. And after that, I was just like, I'd never want to pitch again. But of course you have oh, to. So. Mm. How do you approach the actual pitching process? There's so many different ways. I hate just memorizing stuff and then just reading like, and then this happens. And then this happens. So I'm pitching a show with my friend Dan Peralt, who's one of the creators of American Vandal. And when he was pitching Vandal, they had all this like serious material, like this is the case. And they pitched it like it was a real like documentary. And so the one we're doing, we have like a slideshow, which is a great trick because it diverts their attention away from looking at you. And then like, as we're reading, we're just like scrolling through these pictures, which also gets a laugh. So I think that's a that's my favorite way that I've pitched ever. And it's, it seems to be working. People like it. In terms of the actual sort of physical act of pitching, how different is it from pitching in the room? Um, I think it's much more of a performance. Like Dan's a great actor, so he's awesome at pitching. Whereas me, I'm like collapsing and I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to have to stare at you while I'm telling jokes. We're in the room. Every, it's super relaxed and like everyone knows everything could bomb for one day. It doesn't matter. But with the pitch, it's like, this is life or death. I have to pitch this or you're not going to buy it. So there's so much added pressure. And on the feature side, you're really just kind of sending out the scripts more. And then if someone likes it, you get into the, you know, are we going to make this kind of thing rather than pitching the movie in the room and then going into it? You know? Yeah. I've never pitched a movie. I've just written them. And then it seems like the way that it's gotten made thus far is like a producer will come on board and then they'll try and get an actor. And usually once you have an actor, then it's like, oh, there's a bunch of places that want to make this if they like the actor. So that's been my experience. How do you kind of generate ideas for what you want to write next? What inspires you? Um, Usually it's just a title. <laughs> like I, I just write down pun titles, mostly like The Binge and The Purge. That's obvious. And like even with Animaniacs, like I'll come in with just pun titles. And I know one that's not getting made. So I'll just say it was like, Friday night mice. It's like, oh, pinky in the brain. Like, oh, what if it's like Friday night lights and just like work backwards from the title, which is probably the worst advice you could give anyone. But like, <laughs> yeah, Fast Nine, The Fast and the Fuhrer, Bigly, all of them came from titles first. And then I work like, oh, what would the characters be? What would the story be in this? And then that's basically what I've done so far. And it's worked out fine. And how do you stay plugged into pop culture or political stuff if that's what you're into to generate that material? Uh, on Twitter constantly. I'm, yeah, I'm just always refreshing Twitter, <laughs> waiting to get a retweet. Are you an addict? Is I'm an addict. Intervention? Yep. And it, it's, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Twitter. Hell of a time. <laughs> it's given me everything. It's really like every job I've gotten is really, you could trace back to Twitter. So I have to have to thank them. And what are your long-term career goals? Where do you kind of see yourself and in the future? I want to get that year long pasta pass, which is $500. <laughs> and then you get unlimited pasta. For this the is a real thing. That's really the year long one. Yep. 500 bucks. You can eat there every day, three times a day. It's a great deal. Think about and, how many writing jobs you could get from that. And just bring in writer's assistants to the Olive Garden. It's It would kill me. I think after eating there for a month, I would die. It's just terribly unhealthy. Breadsticks, soup. <laughs> think about it right now. It's a good idea. Uh, but yeah, long term, I would like to be, I guess, creating my own shows and continuing features. I mean, the movie was so fun. I, I don't know if they're all that fun, but the, it was just so great to be in Syracuse and be on set and watching the actors work and reading your lines. It was just so awesome. <laughs> 
All right, before we go, we have a couple of final questions. Number one, what are you watching on TV right now? What am I watching? Oh, I watch a lot of 90 Day Fiance. Do you guys watch that <laughs> on TLC? No, I watch uh, different kinds of unscripted content, but oh, not that. It's so good. You guys got to tune in. They do it before the 90 Day now and after the 90 Day. It's the best show on television. <laughs> I bought a lot of cameos for friends. You know, Oh, cameos. my God. Yes, yeah. I'm very familiar with cameos. The whole <laughs> gamut of 90 Day Fiance people are on there. Um, I'm getting married. I hired a lot of cameos to ask my groomsmen <laughs> if they'd want to do it. I've spent more money on cameo than, than the pasta pass. It's a real investment. <laughs> yes. I'm wasting my money left and right. Uh, what else am I? I'm watching Righteous Gemstones. I just finished that. Uh, I started Succession, but I only watched the first. Everyone loves that theme song. Yeah. I was like, I got to just watch it for this theme song. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Have you, did you just watch the first episode of the yeah, series? I've only seen the first episode. Yeah. I feel like that's like the worst one because you feel like you hate everyone. You're not sure yeah. why you should be watching the show. But if you finish at least the first season, you'll get okay. the hype. That's what everyone says. I, the, all these shows are like, you got to just stick it out. Three yeah. seasons in, you're going to start loving it. <laughs> yeah. Like even The Wire, everyone's like, just dip, skip second <laughs> season, start at season three. And it's like, I shouldn't have to wait 40 yeah. episodes to like Something. I agree. I mean, I feel like the wire the first season was was actually good. Yeah. Uh, but Succession, I do feel like it gets better even in the first half of the se- season. Yeah. But I feel like that gets worse with anime too. People are like, after episode one hundred, you're gonna love it. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I have to stay in that long, I'm never gonna watch it. But what else is on? I don't know. Uh, I've been in just the Syracuse hole for so long that I, I haven't been watching anything. Any good comedies out? What are you guys watching? Uh, well, Succession was going to be mine. Mm-hmm. I just um, finished uh, the new season of Big Mouth. I'm starting on the new season of BoJack. Uh-huh. Yeah, I got to watch the new season, the final season of The Good Place. I've not started it yet. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I, I watch a lot of like unscripted content, competition shows. And then also I just started Watchmen. I don't know if oh, you saw yeah. Watchmen. I, I need to watch it, that. But everyone's raving that it's awesome. It's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I watched a ton of Bachelor, Bachelorette, <laughs> Bachelor in Paradise. I'm in a, a fantasy league. I don't watch sports. Oh my God. I just watch The Bachelor. Well, we should talk because I'm in a fantasy league for Big Brother and Survivor. Oh, so. look at us. Living the dream <laughs> oh out in Hollywood. Uh, yeah, it's so funny. Like, I'm my fiance doesn't watch it. So I'm just sitting on the couch alone <laughs> texting all my guy friends like, did Becca P really just say that? It's, it's crazy. The only, blast, un- the only unscripted I really see is when my fiance is watching stuff. She loves cooking shows, especially like the Great British Bake Off, yeah. all that stuff. We're actually going to be doing like a live version of the Great British Bake Off soon with our friends. Like they're going to bake a bunch of stuff and then I'm going to be one of the judges who gets to like criticize them and eat free food. So are you going to film that or are you just doing it for fun? We're just kind of doing it for fun, but I don't know. Maybe we'll do some like Instagram live stories or do something. Do some grams. I'll watch it. All right. We'll trade off. I'll send you my Mambo <laughs> number fives. We'll have a yes, blast. That's great. <laughs> Uh, Do you have any final advice for TV writers that you think would be helpful or feature writers? Find an angle and keep pushing at it. So like a lot of my friends have written one pilot and they're like, this, this is not getting made. I don't know why I'm not getting a job from it. And it's like, okay, we'll write five more. Like there's no, don't ever stop just because someone doesn't like the first one. Maybe they'll like the second one or find a weird way in, write a, a cheers that takes place and, 9-11 or not that because it's Seinfeld, <laughs> but yeah, write something weird that'll get noticed and just put it out there. Don't be so precious about it. Like I had a friend when I was doing weekend scripts, I was like, you should register these with the WGA and not post them. And I was like, that's not the point. Like, I don't think this will ever get made. It can't get made. And I want people to just spread it around so I can get a job. So <laughs> yeah, finding weird angles in and just continuing to write stuff no matter what. And lastly, do you have any resources, be it apps, websites, book, anything you can think of that you want to recommend to our listeners? Well, just this podcast, which is great. (laughs) And then obviously I listen to script notes, which I feel like a ton of people listen to and Twitter and ton of Twitter. Yeah. And that's the other thing is like, it seems like a lot of writers 
are helping each other out with the the WGA boost and all that on Twitter. So get on there and just start sending your stuff to people, even if they don't want it. Just bother <laughs> them constantly. All right. Well, before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get exclusive content, opportunities, merch, and we can keep producing a great show for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. And thanks very much to Jordan for joining us. Thanks, guys. What a blast. It was a blast. Thanks. Let's go to uh, Olive Garden. Yes. Yeah. Uh, tune in to, to the after show. And uh, you can get all the shows for this episode, including, I guess, an ad to Olive Garden at paperteam.co slash 163. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Where can our listeners find you? Uh, at Shrimp Tooth. Uh, <laughs> means nothing. It was my fourth grade screen name, but that's my uh, Twitter handle. Nice. <laughs> All right. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week will be the last episode of 2019. I'll be our holiday special. Uh, gifts will be exchanged. Uh, secrets will be revealed. And uh, we'll be a week away from 2020. Sounds like an episode of The Bachelor. Secrets will be revealed. Is uh, Chris, uh, what's his name? Chris Harrison. Chris Harrison going to join us? Alex, you've been cheating on me with another podcast host. <laughs> well, I've got this rose I want to offer you at the end of it. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next week. See you then.